I want to thank everybody for uh, coming upstairs for lunch. If I could interrupt your lunch for just a moment. We're going to move on to our lunch speaker, uh, and we are very uh, lucky and honored to have uh, Congressman Scott Garrett from New Jersey here with us. Um, again, there's a more extensive bio that's been handed out, but uh, this is not the first Cato event that Congressman Garrett has spoken at, and, and, and in fact, I, I feel like we might be going to him too often, but that's only because it's hard to find a congressman who consistently, I think, is on the right side of so many issues as, as Scott Garrett. So it's a real pleasure to have him here over to Cato, and I do appreciate him coming uh, across town. So I'm going to turn it over to the, the congressman who's going to speak for a little bit and take a few questions. And there you go. And thank you for the introduction. Thank you for allowing me to uh, be here and uh, say a few words. Uh, thank you for allowing me to uh, interrupt your uh, lunch. I see there's a lot more food out there, so feel free to uh, get up, get more, enjoy your lunch. So um, today's here, uh, hearing, today's uh, gathering, what have you. I understand is entitled um, Dodd-Frank's Third Anniversary, right? Um, has it all been worth it? And I guess to answer that question, which is what I'm here for today, is it all depends on who you ask the question to. If you ask that question to some of the many newly hired professionals in compliance, um, and I know a number of them now uh, up on Wall Street, I would say, uh, they would say it's a resounding yes. <laughs> if you asked all the lobbyists here in town who are now making, well, they were always making a lot of money, but now they're even making more money, um, hand over fist because of this, I would say that they would answer yes. If you ask any of the Beltway uh, bureaucrats who have had their budgets, their power, their authority exceedingly increased exponentially, I think they would say yes as well. If you talk to anybody in my profession, that is trial attorneys, or if you talk to unions, they would probably say yes as well. And of course, if you asked folks over at Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac who've been able to continue to crowd out private investment in the housing market and basically and further entrench their monopolization on the secondary mortgage market, they would answer yes as well. You can go on further if you ask the two big to fail banks around this country, especially my neck of the woods, who are still happy with the implicit backing uh, that is locked into Dodd-Frank, the answer would be yes. And of course, if you ask Chairman Gensler, who is trying to exploit the laws by fundamentally altering a limiting provision into one, of the, one that enables him to regulate the entire global swaps markets, albeit that some of it pushed back by some of us, he would answer yes as well. So in answering that question, I guess there's a resounding yes, if you ask the right people. However, on the other side of the equation, I would think there were some folks here who might be saying no. If you ask a small group of people from the uh, back at home, from the community banks, they may say no. If you talk to some of the folks from the uh, credit unions, they may say no. If you asked any of the job creators, the innovators, the risk takers all across this country, the entrepreneurs, they would probably say no. And of course, if you go back home and ask the taxpayers who now explicitly support large, too big to fail banks, they would say no. If you ask, right, around the ne this neck of the woods, the terribly overworked DC uh, District Court, uh, who has had to keep up with uh, striking down portions of Dodd-Frank and the regulations, they would say no. And of course, again, if you ask the homeowners, the consumers, 
small businessmen and women who are struggling right now basically to get any access to credit in the credit markets, their answer would be no. And finally, if you ask the founding fathers of this country, they would say no. Now I realize you can't ask the founding fathers, they're all dead, but they have given us the Constitution and that is very clearly indicate that they would say no. So if you know my record, and the fact that I'm here, I guess some of you do, I voted against Dodd-Frank because it had failed to address one of the most fundamental causes of the financial crisis, and one which we are now looking at last week in um, committee hearing. I appreciate Mark attending that for an all-day event, and which we will be doing marking up later on. Um, but it continued, though, to allow for government intervention into the private sector and continue with the institution of policies that are basically killing jobs. But there's another, uh, what do you want to say, more fundamental uh, reason why I oppose Dodd-Frank. Um, and I think surprisingly, uh, uh, well, the, the reason for that is, is one of the main reasons actually why I went to Congress in the first place back in 2002, um, which was, and why I later started the uh, Constitution Caucus, is because Dodd-Frank is fundamentally unconstitutional. And there is, as you probably know, a lawsuit that is right now challenging the constitutionality of Dodd-Frank, and it really, I guess with all the other scandals that are going on around town, has gotten surprisingly little attention um, by the media or for the, by the folks downtown who pay attention to these things. And that's why I just want to talk about that a little bit today. When you talk about the uh, Constitution and the founding, founder, founding fathers, one of the philosophical foundations of our Constitution is what? It's the protection of individual rights, individual liberty, and to do so how? Through a limited government. And as a result, our Constitution establishes, as it does, a government that is supposed to be based upon restraint. And it does so how? It does so by enumerating a few specific defined powers, which our, which our Congress continuously violates. It does so by dividing the powers of responsibilities between the branches and establishing a so-called checks and balances. But with Dodd-Frank, rather than establishing a regulatory regime that is consistent with these constitutional um, principles, Dodd-Frank is, I would say, the great exception to the Constitution. Dodd-Frank creates not one, but as you've discussed in previous panels, two agencies that are granted essentially unlimited power to define and regulate basically every conceivable financial uh, transaction in the country and it is accountable to no one. And I'll digress here. If you watched the hearing that we had two or three weeks ago, when you had some folks over from uh, CFPB um, asking them as far as their ability to be accountable to anybody, they said, no, we are not accountable to anyone. So the two agencies that we're talking about is that one, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and the section, second one, of course, is EPSOC. Put them together, they are basically the judge, the jury, and unfortunately, the executioner, if you will, of the economy uh, of this country. So let's take a minute then just to talk about the CFPB. As I said, we uh, just had some folks from there, and CFO I, guess, CFO, I guess, was, and that was the last question I put to him, are you accountable to anyone? Asked, asked him the question repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. He basically dodged it, but his last breath was, no, we're not. Um, this agency really could not get have gotten off the ground without what it did do, which was to violate the Constitution. I, of course, refer to the fact that the uh, unconstitutional appointment of its director, Richard Cordroy, during a recess appointment. 
And unfortunately, unfortunately, also unfortunately, last week, uh, Harry Reid in the Senate held over, despite a 200-year Senate tradition, uh, held hostage and by default wound up pu pulling the so-called nuclear option, if not directly, but you might say indirectly, and forcing, you might say, the minority party to approve the president's outstanding executive appointments, regardless of the concerns that the minority held. Now, some of us wish that the minority would have held them a little more firmly and, and, and stood up to that pressure, but that is not the case as far as the Senate. That's why you have the House, um, at least in these areas. So the president's actions on the illegitimate recess appointment of Mr. Cordray did what? It basically erased the advice and consent clause um, with, from the uh, appointments clause of the Constitution. And by doing this, it imperils the legislative checks and balance that the founders intended in the Constitution. And why did they put those in the Constitution? Because they were fearful of tyranny. Um, unless we are able to have a check and a balance on power down the street in the White House, they would have unlimited power in the White House. And that's what you see here with CPB. Now, we've had the appointment since then. So some people now step back and say, well, that is old, old news. Um, because it's not a commissioner type arrangement, he's able now to uh, basically ratify all of his appointments that he uh, made prior to him getting there. And so they say the issue of unconstitutional muster is of no significance anymore. But let me point this out. It's worse than that because if we look, dig into uh, Dodd-Frank just to see what their mission is, it goes so far. CFP mission is to prevent practices, this is what it says, that is empowered to define as, quote, unfair, deceptive, or abusive. And it does that. It has that directive of law with the limitless grant of authority with absolutely no checks whatsoever on the CFPB. CFPB. And if you step back, and again, if you read some of the writings of our founding fathers, if you read some of the writings of uh, James Madison, and I think it's uh, 57, but I'm not much sure, uh, he says, when it called Congress, Congress's most complete and effectual weapon is, anybody know that? The power of the purse. But with the CFPB, by funding it as it does, not through Congress and not through the appropriation powers, it takes that away from that. And of course, it does it through the Federal Reserve. Furthermore, the CFP director is exempt from the executive branch. So he's one, on the one hand, he's exempt from us over the legislator, but he's also exempt from the executive and the president. How so? Um, because the director is appointed by the president for a five-year term. But after the five-year term is up, he can stay on how long? Basically, indefinitely, uh, if no successor is ever confirmed. And if you just see how this process went through, uh, if we're so lucky to have a Republican um, president next time around, if we're so lucky to have a uh, Republican Senate, I'm sure that the uh, Democrat minority will probably acquiesce, just like uh, the Republican minority acquiesced this time to allow the next confirmation to go through. I'm not holding my breath on that. But if that does not occur, then that means after five years and the Senate can't confirm a new director, we will have Richard Cordroy on indefinitely. How can he be removed? Well, the director can only be removed under strict, limited circumstances and not for policy reason, which basically means that if the next president decides that he is not conducting the policies as he would like to, it doesn't matter, he can do it. Additionally, so then we have the legislative, now we have the executive, and just back down the street this way, the judicial. Judicial review is limited because of special deference is given to CFPB legal interpretations as well. So all three branches of government are basically removed from degree of oversight from the CFPB. 
And finally, the CFPB is headed by a singular regu regulator who basically, and I was just reading through it again the other day, has essentially unlimited power. So he's not accountable legislative, not accountable executive, he's not accountable to the judicial. Now, I want to stress this point is not simply an academic point. We could probably go through a whole list of uh, how this violation of the uh, exercise of a constitutional um, authority of unrestrained has implications across the board. Let me just give one a practical one, and that is in the area of salaries. Of the almost 1,000 employees that they have, they have 958 employees as of a little bit ago, 577 of those employees over there, that's 60% of the entire staff, they make over $100,000. 20% of them make over a good salary of $150,000. 5% of them make a salary of over $200,000. Now, you might think, and a lot of people push back on this, well, there's a reason why there are such high salaries over at the CFPB. It's because of the talent that they need for all the important jobs that they're doing. Well, one thing you should do, it is summertime, is just to check in to see how much they're paying for interns over at the uh, CFPB. Uh, interns' annualized salaries are probably the same as uh, Cato, $40,000 a year um, for interns. So it's a great place. Unfortunately, $40,000 is more than a lot of members of Congress pay their full-time staff for the entire year. So we, we might be surprised by this, but we really shouldn't be surprised by this. If you consider the all the unconstitutionality of it, if you consider the immense power um, and the immense mandate that has been given to this, when you consider the fact that they know that no one is really watching, and even if anyone is watching, they know that there is no accountability, they know that there is no consequences. When we had the director from, um, assistant director up, yeah, uh, assistant director, I guess, oh, up there at one point in time, we were asking about the salaries, just this one particular point, he had no idea what was going on within their own watch. I guess they basically feel justified in doing just about whatever they want to do. So this is what we can result from a lack of accountability, and this is really what should frighten all of us. But there's still more. Move away from the CFPB, move over to FSOC, which I think you discussed about. That's Title I of Dodd-Frank. That creates the Financial Services Stability Oversight Council. And what is that supposed to do? That's supposed to serve as a systemic regulator. Now, go back in time, about two, two and a half or three years, I guess, when Dodd-Frank was initially going through committee. How many people here, just like to know my audience, was tuning in to any of the committee hearings that we were having? Okay, good. Only, only one, one person in the room. Everybody else was out there doing, making, uh, making a living or having fun. So if you tuned in at that time, you may recall then, gentlemen, that the question came up repeatedly to the many panels who were there as proponents of Dodd-Frank who said we need a systemic uh, regulator for systemic risk. We asked them, and I asked them this question, I remember Geithner was there, can you define to us what a uh, systemic regulator is? And not one of them could do so. Um, now we have a law that basically says we have a systemic regulator, and it's the FSOC. And what is its ch ch charge to do? It's preventing too big to fail and preventing all future uh, bank uh, bailouts. And that, therefore, means we are never going to ever again have a crisis like we had back in 08 because of the passage of Dodd-Frank. With this mandate, the power of the FSOC, just like the CFPB, cannot be overstated. What do they have the authority to do? They have the, they have the uh, statute ability to promulgate its own rules and regulations, as well as authority to determine which non-bank financial institutions would be subject to seizure. And with all this power, the, uh, the chair, uh, by cabinet-level position, is chaired by someone who that the president gets to appoint. What's the significance of that? That's the significance of that is the politicalization of this process. Additionally, FSOC is empowered with the ability to control the activities of any, note the word, any financial institution with simply a two-thirds vote of its membership. 
Now you hear all that, you consider all the immense power that this entity has, and you might sit there as strong constitutionalists and say, well, isn't that unconstitutional? Now, if you think that, you're not alone. Other people thought it was too. People who also thought it was potentially unconstitutional as well were the drafters of the bill itself, the proponents of the legislation. And how do we know that? We know that by digging deeper into the bill, we know that they specifically said that the courts are not authorized to review and rule on whether or not the FSOC has been correctly interpreted the provisions of Dodd-Frank. So basically, they've just pushed the courts out of being able to determine any of the constitutionality of Step back even further, and you say, look at all that Congress has tried to do over the years, over the 225 years of uh, our history. Who knew that it was that easy to simply to th push the Constitution aside? All you had to do was pass a bill like Dodd-Frank and say, Supreme Court or the courts, you just simply have no authority in this area, and we can get to do what we want to do without any oversight by any other branches. Move on from that to the issue of liquidation authority. We see that the problems with this entity do not end there. Under Title II of Dodd-Frank, it deals with something called orderly liquidation. Under this title, the government can decide, again, if a financial com authority company, um, anyone in the country under this title, can decide if they are basically in danger of default, and if they were to default, whether that would be a uh, systemic risk to the overall economy. It goes back to the initial question that we had for the members of the uh, panels that we had when Dodd-Frank were coming through. What is the systemic risk? They couldn't define it now. Now they're going to be able to define it to such an extent that they can actually look at one financial institution and say that you are going to pose unilaterally you know, a systemic risk to the, uh, to the country, and therefore we have authority to rein you in or turn you, close you down. How do you go about doing that? Well, it's very simple, actually. If the Treasury Department answers yes to both of those questions, it can basically do what? Replace the entire 200-plus uh, year history of the bankruptcy code in this country and put it into receivership. Now, this type of power, of course, is unprecedented. It grants an immense, unlimited power, if you will, unquestioned power to a handful of, not politicians, mind you, but basically unelected bureaucrats, and it does what we've been accusing this administration has been doing for the last four or five years, and that is allowing them to pick winners and losers among the liquidated companies that they and the investors behind them as well. Now, once they do this, or once they pick you out and say that uh, you are going to be a systemic risk to the uh, economy if you default, a couple things happen. Um, an order is issued. Uh, that company then has a full 24 hours to convince a federal judge to say, stop it. 24 hours to be able to stop this entire process is a mind-boggling period of time, short period of time to do it. But that's all they have is 24 hours. If the company fails to meet that test, and I would say that is almost an impossible standard, then the government basically wins by default. And the government then can begin the process of liquidation, even if your company and even if the company that you're invested in continues to appeal the process. So they do it, 24 hours is over, they begin to liquidate, start selling things off, you're in court appealing it, meanwhile all the assets are being lost. Again, go back as far as, don't you think that some of this is unconstitutional? Again, the uh, proponents of it thought so as well. So what do they do? They also put another provision there, prohibits the courts from reviewing whether the Treasury's decision was constitutional or not. 
or whether it was even necessary to protect financial stability of the country. Of the, of the country. So while Treasury is determining the soundness of the institution, looking at your company, seeing whether it's sound or not, whether it's going to have an uh, impact upon the uh, economy, Dodd-Frank then prohibits the company, your company, from disclosing the fact that the federal government, the Treasury, is looking at you. So in other words, they come in, they're telling you, they're looking at you, you want to let that information out to the public, they tell you basically no, you can't tell anybody else, you can't be going to the court at this period of time, you're closed down. Now there'd be some people who think that um, the 24-hour period of time that I mentioned before is enough time to challenge a government's unilateral and arbitrary decision um, by, the by the country. I would disagree. But if you are not this person, the authority in Dodd-Frank must be seen then by all of us as a unilateral, excessive, of tr um, unilateral attack on not only the company, but also the investors in that company as well. It is a war on free markets in this country. Looking at all this in a 30,000 foot level, it's astounding to think that in many ways Dodd-Frank is unconstitutional and it is bad enough when Congress acts in a way that violates a single part of our Constitution, but it is infinitely worse when Congress works to virtually eliminate all systems of checks and balances between all three branches of government, and it does so all in one swell swoop, that is Dodd-Frank. It is even more frightening, and I'm sure that the constitutional violations that we just set out here, I think I went through one, two, three, four different constitutional violations just in these 15 or 20 minutes that I've been talking. The problem is there are even more um, in it as well. It is even more frightening when you go back again to one of my more favorite quotes from uh, James Madison when he says that a bill is bad not only because when it's, or a law is bad not only when it's unconstitutional, of course, but also when you probably know this quote, when it's so voluminous that it cannot be read or so co inherent that they cannot be understood. For those of you, I guess there was just one in the room who was watching this hearing. If you were, for the rest of you who didn't tune this in, you may know that there was multiple hearings, both in the House and the Senate, and in the conference when this was always going down. I was in the House when this was occurring. I was also placed on the conference um, that went on for a couple weeks as well. As you probably know, many of these provisions that we've talked about are provisions that were added at the very end of the process. Some of the provisions that we didn't talk about here that goes back to the um, Gensler provisions with regard to, uh, to uh, Title VII and derivatives and that sort of thing were actually added to, um, to the bill at around 3 o'clock in the morning just before the bill came down. From uh, any point of view that you look at it, this is a violation of our rights, of our liberties, uh, and for that reason, uh, I hope that three years from now, we will, be we will not be having a similar lunch um, marking the sixth anniversary of Dodd-Frank. And with that, I thank you very much for your kind attention this afternoon. What are the prospects of the administration using Dodd-Frank to crush its political opponents, or at least to uh, con convince them to move in the way they want? Well, fortunately, we have never seen any examples from this administration of using any power of the, uh, of the federal government to uh, go after p for political groups. So I think that is just a, that's a one-off in this case. Um, it, it's, certainly a, it's certainly a potential. Uh, you know, we, we have talked to a number of folks who are in the industry, whether it's banking or Wall Street. Um, they would not say necessarily that it's being done for political purposes from the sense of the purely... Um, politics of getting this party elected versus this other party elected, but it's certainly being done from an ideological perspective, that's for sure, yeah. And if not this administration, potentially for a future administration. 
Yeah. And that's another reason why we have to rein it in. And that's the other reason why uh, the founders understood why you can't give the powers, such tyrannical powers, to, uh, to one branch of the government, specifically the executive. Was there another question? Yes, sir. Yes, John Burlaw, the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Yep. Thank you so much for speaking here and all you're doing. Um, uh, my organization, uh, along with a, another and, and a community bank in Texas, is co-plaintiff in the lawsuit that you mentioned. And first, I just wanted to, and thanks for the shout out, but first I wanted to, just wanted to say, um, it is, does not, Cordray's confirmation, as much, as, as bad as it was, does not render, you know, our case a, a moot. There are many other challenges to the CFPB. We're also challenging FSOC and Orderly Liquidation Authority, such as the things you mentioned that are in our suit, like the limits on the removal of the director and the lack of judicial review. And even with the recess, with the non-recess recess appointment, the things that were done there, unless they're reauthorized or the fines there, could still, in, in some cases, be void. But there was, a, speaking of the Constitution, there, your, some of your colleagues have had hearing about another interesting thing the CFPB is doing, an NSA-style database of our financial transactions. I just wondered what your thoughts are on that. Well, uh, I mean, uh, you mean a new... The legislation we're working on now, or which point? No, no, no. They're they're compiling from Representative Duffy, um, uh, Senator Crapo, nine hundred oh. million financial trans uh, credit card. They want to have nine hundred million credit card transactions. Oh, right, 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 they're right. demanding it from banks as part of the examination process. Not even a formal rule. Yes, the Chamber Duffy, of Duffy Commerce course, has yeah. written a letter about this, and yep, yep, uh, yep, yep. it really rivals the NSA without even a semblance of a terrorism just justification. Right. I don't even think the NSA one is justified. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I know Duffy and those guys are working on that. Now, the pushback by the, uh, not justification, but the pushback by the administration on that, as you probably well know, is that this is no different than the information that is being collected by um, by other regulators, specifically if the OCC and what have you, as they begin to look at their own or regulate um, and supervision of their financial institutions under them. But, of course, that's not a complete answer. The complete answer is yes, it is. It's much broader than any of these other uh, individual institutions are doing. It's a collective of all, all the data. Um, so uh, we have not, and our committee has not specifically delved into it yet. Um, but uh, we saw what's being done out there, and we're, we're concerned about the additional collection information as well. Going back to your earlier point with regard to uh, the lawsuit that's involved here, um, the, diff the, uh, the reason I make the point that it affects the lawsuit to, to, to some extent, to the extent that um, uh, part of the lawsuit, I know you have multiple ports to it, part of the lawsuit goes to the issue of the regulations that, would, as you know, was issued prior to the um, uh, appropriate appointment of the director. Um, he, unlike any of the other commissions that are out there, any other structures that are out there, um, doesn't have a checks and balance on him. He's not like the over the SEC where he would have to go to them now and say, well, we've had these 22 other regulations that we promulgated before I came in. Um, now I want to retroactively um, uh, reaffirm those regulations. If you did that over at the uh, CFTC or the SEC, you'd have to go through both the bipartisan commissioners, as you're well aware. Here, he can do it, I guess, um, basically by the stroke of a pen because he is the director without anyone else that is answerable. So he can basically... If he hasn't done it already, have all those regulations promulgated all over again and say, um, yes, that's the case. So it's a, that's just a little bit of a difference that he has in the extensive authority that he has that would be different if, than if you were talking about one of these other agencies, right? Yes, I, although I, I, it would still be a process for him to do, to do it. I don't know if it would be easier than 
those other easier than those other agencies. And there's still a, a question about uh, if, if there were fines during the tenure, would those would the during his unconstitutional tenure, would those fines be void right. for the businesses and individuals? And all the other things were challenging, as you said about right. about the bureau. Right. So. Right. Yes, ma'am. Hi, Congressman Alicia Saratandi with LPI. Um, I think it's you've made an absolutely wonderful case why Dodd Frank is unconstitutional. Um, okay. I think these, the OLA and these resolution authorities, the way you're describing it, it sounds like the iPad. Frankly, these these, yeah. uh, it's like the iPad for the banks, right? <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, my discretionary, you, and, and then it, you can and then you can put them out of their misery. Yeah, yeah right. Okay. The living will, right? So my question to you is is. What is the Congress prepared to do? I think a lot of what the Obama administration has been able to get away with is because there's a huge policy vacuum and the divisiveness in the, in the Congress um, between the parties is, is letting these guys get away literally with murder. And as far as I understand, um, the, the Constitution in the, in the period before the Constitution was created, um, going back to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, there was a fight to develop an authority strong enough to assert its sovereign powers above that of then the British Empire. Okay. And that's what our Constitution is. Right. And we have an incredible opportunity right now with bills in both houses to pass Glass-Steagall, get a full separation. You're in a powerful position to do that. And I really hope that... Uh, contributions from Wall Street are not holding you and your other colleagues back from doing that. Um, okay, I'll hit those in reverse order. As far as the, um, let's see, what was reverse order? So contributions from Wall Street, nah, um, that, that doesn't really affect me um, in as much as um, um, I really don't follow the exactly, don't tell that to any of the lobbyists who write me the checks, but uh, as closely exactly who they're all coming from all the time. So, um, that's what my fundraisers do, but I don't. Uh, as far as the reinstitution of uh, Glass-Steagall, um, I've said to uh, other folks in that regard um, a couple things. One is that um, if I had the little chart with me, you could see all the financial institutions that failed after 08. Um, and I can't remember the percentage right now, let's say about half of those would have been Glass-Steagall banks, in other words, had Glass-Steagall not been um, repealed, and they failed just alongside the other ones as well. Um, so in other words, Glass-Steagall would not have been, some people think that Glass-Steagall would have been, oh, that's the panacea, and we would not have had 08 because it would have been in place and kept it separated. No, it wouldn't. You would have seen a number of these institutions fail anyway. Um, and the other problem is, is if you go back, not to harp on Glass-Steagall, but the other problem is, is Glass-Steagall has inherent in it its own problem as well. Um, you have to go back to when I was first out of law school and my, one of my, some of my first jobs was working for a firm. I didn't do a lot of it, but was uh, bankruptcy protection or bankruptcy law. Um, and that was after the um, savings and loan situation, right? And what's the, uh, there was a couple of reasons for the savings and loan. Um, debacle, I guess part of it was the change in the tax law, if I'm not mistaken. But the other reason was is because the fundamental structure of savings and loans institutions is that they're uh, funding long-term debt with uh, short-term uh, money. And if you go back to a pure Glass-Steagall situation, you basically go back to um, uh, that situation, to the um, Bailey savings and loan situation all over again, where you're lo loaning people 30-year um, money uh, based upon uh, their deposits, which just as we saw just before, on Christmas Eve, they're able to all come in and say, I want my money back. Um, so it's not the um, 
Uh, and if you go in one last slide, I could probably do, at least in my head, if I put this to paper, you could look on the number of bank failures from the time of implementation of Glass-Steagall up until its repeal. Um, it's not like we went through this smooth road over the years, all the years, like, oh, Glass-Steagall stopped all these things. Um, they didn't. Uh, so what does that mean? It means that we need to do um, some sort of reform, some sort of separation, or some sort of variation. I don't want to say variation of Glass-Steagall, but some sort of other reform, and that's what... Um, uh, the committee is looking at. I can candidly say to you that the leadership of the committee doesn't have um, an answer to this one and say, "Who? here's the, uh, you know, here's the yellow folder on that one. I, I do have a yellow folder on, on Dodd-Frank and how we can fix a whole bunch of those things. And I do have a yellow folder on GSEs on, because I'm pretty uh, on top of that and how we solve those issues. On this issue, I can candidly say we don't have, this is the one solution. Glass-Steagall just reinstating it um, just doesn't do it. It needs something else. And it also needs some of it else incorporated this as far as the, the fact that we've gone away from the rule of law entirely, um, that even with Glass-Steagall, if it came back this afternoon, and if some of these banks still would fail, because they would for these reasons and other reasons, um, we have law here in Dodd-Frank basically that would still say, oh, now you have these two big savings and loan um, or two, uh, two other um, um, Two, two large um, commercial banks were still going to have um, Ola come in and bail them out because they're systemically important. So it's 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 a bigger it's a bigger problem than that. Moses, you had some other point at the beginning. I'm, I'm doing it in reverse order. And I forget your first point. Um, I just agreed that it is. Oh, so I, I'm ending on the agreement. Good. Well, also that I mean, you, the Congress has a. I was saying there was a, there was a vacuum, and you confirmed. Oh that. yeah. But you have a great opportunity to work together a, a, apart from partisan divide on on taking on. Uh, supranational financial interests who are really yeah. just destroying this country. We do, and uh, would that we have. I mean, um, on, the, on the bipartisan stuff, hey, I'm all about that. And if you look at some of my legislation, um, if you looked at Dodd-Frank, hey, I got some stuff into Dodd-Frank, working with Barney on that on um, a couple points, like uh, uh, rating agencies and that sort of thing. And I've worked on other legislation with uh, Maloney, who's a Democrat from New York, and a few other people. So there's all sorts of bipartisanship that goes on. Um, but uh, part of our problem last session when we were in the majority was as we moved a whole bunch of bills, some of them in bipartisan manner actually, in the House, in our committee and then the House, and they all move over to the Senate. And as you probably know, in the Senate, you know, basically nothing happened on these areas at all. As much as we want to say, hey, let's work bipartisan and get together and uh, let's all be happy, um, the Senate was a, a killer. Now, hopefully this session, the Senate is will be more open um, and amenable to work together, and we can start formulating new ideas, and uh, maybe they'll come together on it. Hope so. Hope springs eternal. Thank, thanks for the questions. Yeah, I'm, I'm Michael Michaud with uh, KBW. Uh, in terms of GSE reform, there are a lot of other big, huge topics before the House right now, like immigration. Do you think there is enough bandwidth, I guess you could say, coming this fall to bring something this big and this important to the floor and make people, oh, I mean, there, I'm, there not, I'm definitely books. not taking immigration up through capital market subcommittee. I can, I can say that right now. Um, so sure. Um, so we're going to have a meeting, uh, I guess this is public. It'll get out. I mean, we're having a meeting later on today with Eric Canner, um, from our committee and to talk about G, uh, GSE reform. Right. And so that, that tells me that leadership is, um, uh, in, invested in what we've been doing for like two and a half or three years now has finally come to the, to the um, floor, floor, or will come to the floor. Um, 
So I think we can, we can do that. Immigration is a whole other topic, and we're not going to, I can tell you this, we're not going to do the Senate bill. We're going to do, uh, I guess it's not piecemeal. We're doing a step-by-step approach, I think is the new phrase for it in the House. But in my book, um, I will always be pushing these issues first, uh, economic issues, um, trying to get the economy moving again issues, uh, the issues that the young lady was talking about as far as um, trying to rein in the banks and try to deal with some of these really profound issues first. I think those really have to... Uh, uh, come to the f- uh, floor before we get into some of these other issues, because on those issues there's even less um, less of a consensus on, and on those issues there's even less of a um, bipartisan uh, approach to them as well, which makes it difficulty. Yeah. Any other uh, questions on this t- topic or any other topic outside of my bandwidth? I, because I can always make it up. If oh, there oh there is okay yes sir. A lot, of com- uh, a lot of conversation around the word bipartisan, and um, <clears throat> when you talk to a Democrat, obviously it's the Republicans standing in the way. When you talk to a Republican, obviously it's the Democrats standing in the way. But the reality is the last 20 or 30 years we've had successive, in fact, two complete cycles of transfer. Um, in the 90s, you had Democratic control. It switched to Republican control under W back Democratic control, now back under Republican control. Yep. And it keeps getting congre- uh, progressively worse. The, what people call tyranny, the extraction of rights of people up to a government level, et cetera, et cetera, keeps compounding. So the question is, what's driving that? Because it's clearly not a partisan issue. It seems to be driven by both parties toward a common goal. What do you think the common goal is? Power. Yeah. So. Um, Power and control. Yeah. So. Um, so um, a couple of thoughts on that. One is this: as you're right, over the last 20 years, you've seen a um, a quicker turnaround between Republic. Uh, first, the Democrats were in for 40 years, and then we came in, and then for 10, and, then, and each time actually has been getting a little bit shorter as far as the turnaround in that. I think the the the, the quickness of the turnaround between who's in charge, D or R's, is one of the reasons why there's so, so much acrimony. It goes back to the young lady's question as to why can't there be more um, bipartisanship on some, of the, on some of the issues. And the reason is, when, if you're in the minority and you're only short of a dozen votes, then you know that uh, your first priority is that you're going to want to try to get back in the majority so your agenda can be uh, the agenda that passes in the House or the Senate. And if it's only a dozen votes that differentiate between the two parties, you're going to not probably going to work together on some of those bigger issues. Um, you're going to hold off for the two years or do uh, on some of the side issues. Um, that wasn't the problem back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and I guess the 80s when the numbers were about 60 votes difference or something like that. The Republicans were in a permanent minority, and there was never a shot that we were ever going to take it back. And so, yeah, they, they could work together on it. And I guess working together on that really meant a lot of difference, too, because the uh, definition of what a liberal Democrat and a, and a conservative Republican was probably a lot different back in, in Nixon's era than it is today. So the, the nature of... Uh, Working together changes because of how close we are, are together. Um, and yes, the, the, one of the dilemmas I agree with you on is, is that uh, whether you want to describe it as, you know, each party is desirous for power. Yeah, each party does desire to stay in the majority. Right now, everything NRCC does, since I'm closer to them than the DCCC, everything they do is to try to make sure that we retain every seat we have in the House and maybe pick up one or two more so that in 2014, um, in the middle of uh, Obama's uh, 
term, we can basically say no to as much of it as we possibly can. And, and that's a good thing. But through it all, it's crucially important that there are organizations out there and maybe individuals out there and groups out there across the country to continue to talk about and put pressure on your individual congressmen and your individual senators and others as well to continue to push for freedom and liberty um, and conservative constitutional um, values. Uh, we have, I think, we're probably the most conservative GOP conference since I've been there, and I've been there for 10 and a half years now, and that's a good thing. If we can continue that, it only gets better as far as what we're, um, what we're potentially going to do. Um, I wish I had a, a, a way to end this by saying, yes, in 2014, we all go in the right direction because I know that's not the case, or 2016, all of a sudden it turns around. It's, I'll close on Franklin's adage, it's, you know, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, and it just it's groups like this that are educating and uh, coming out with the policy statements that for some of us that we rely upon and try to push our leadership in the right direction. But I'm open to other ideas uh, if there's a better way to do it. Yeah. Instead of striving for a majority, how about striving to represent the people? Well, I think it, I, if, if you were to come, if, I guess it's okay. If, if you were to come to one of our conferences, where we meet downstairs in the, in the bottom of the Capitol, HC5, um, by and large, um, most members would say, as they go to the microphone and say, I'm going to vote this way or that way on whatever the issue of the du jour is, by and large, they would tell you that they are representing, um, they think they're representing um, their constituency on whatever, immigration, Last Eagle, this, that, other thing else, because whatever the topic is, they would say that they are trying to represent their uh, constituency. Um, and in trying to represent their constituency, they're gonna say that it's gonna help uh, to move the uh, ball down the uh, field um, to, to remain in power. Now, I was never one, like I remember, I remember this day being down at, um, at a Republican retreat in a place called Greenbrier when I first came in and I was in the buffet line standing behind member Tom DeLay and he was saying like, Scott, you know, uh, I, was, I was pushing back on Tom on something because I always push back on Tom on something. I was on the budget committee and we wanted to do our thing much more conservative than he wanted to do. And he said, Scott, it doesn't really matter at all if on any of those issues you're just talking about if we're not in the majority. Um, I disagree with him. Um, I think we just had to stick to our principles and uh, what's that adage? Good policy makes good politics. And that's why I always sort of, even after 10 years here, generally speaking, I have a pretty good rating as far as sticking to principle because I think that is the best uh, politics on it. So thanks. Yes, sir. Any other uh, political questions or otherwise? If not, then I will thank you all again for your kind attention and your interest. <laughs>